1: This is Coral, host of Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for two years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories existing at the intersection of food and culture. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritagetradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Meant to be Eaten in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. A few years ago, English professor Dave Haslund moonlighted as a sugar beet truck driver, and he came away with a lot of lessons: the importance of learning itself, of failing, and the ways in which we fight inauthenticity in communication, in food, and in our online and offline selves. He's also possibly the last person on the planet concerned with the imminent death of the last blockbuster. Welcome to the show, Dave.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Coral.
1: So let's start with your simultaneous fascination and fear of digital culture and how that translates to um, you teaching English.
2: Oh, so that's a, that's a really complex question, but it's um, something that really drives everything I do and partially why I'm so interested in food. So um, I think it's a great place to start. So if I had to sum it up, I'd say that digital culture too often confuses the relationship of the process and the product. So um, whether it's using Netflix to get an algorithmic recommendation for a television show to watch or, to, or putting a, a search term into Google... Right? We get the product without spending enough time um, considering the process. And while that can be really helpful, really convenient, really exciting, um, I think that also the, the critic in me gets a little worried about that because the user gets further um, separated from the way the process that the, um, the thing is being developed and the, um, the, the, the labor that's going on behind that.
1: And so how do you find or how do you use English or writing um, communication as a form of problem solving?
2: Well, um, I think the the number one problem I have in my life is how to live a meaningful one. right? And so I think writing is a place where you get to ask yourself um, what exactly you care about, what you prioritize, and um, how you can not just... Do the best for for you, but what to do the best for your world, for your community, for your nation. Um, and so, writing is that place where um, you can be free to um, imagine whatever you like. So, uh, thinking about it in terms of problem solving is maybe a little um, is something that I like to do because it, I think it makes it feel a little bit more connected, a little bit more vital. Where we often think about creativity. Of any form as kind of insubstantial or flaky or kind of detached, but when I think about it as a problem, um, that's all trying to chip away at understanding that, or trying to figure out good answers for how do I live my best life that's the best for the most amount of people, Um, to me that's a place where I can, uh, uh, writing is that place where I can do it, and then also teaching writing, um, I can hopefully give my students an opportunity um, to do that exploring on their own.
1: Yeah, something we talk a lot on this show is the problem of social media, especially, um, like, food porn or just images of food in affecting how we perceive our own taste and our own hunger, and how does writing about food or even engaging with food in an online sphere kind of combat that?
2: Hmm. So, I mean, I think um, this... Uh, uh, um, don't uh, so this. Can, this has an opportunity to go a little bit too abstract here, but I think it boils down to the difference between um, the mind and the body. Right? Um, we often think about uh, food as just a bodily thing. It's a good taste. It's a um, it's it's fuel. It's this kind of uh, this necessary thing for our body. But I think pushing it towards the mental realm, right? By writing about it, by considering it, by analyzing it, by criticizing it. Um, I think that, um, I think that pushes us to, um, I I think that shows us new things about why we, uh, privilege certain foods or why we can kind of go down these rabbit holes of, um, you know, uh, getting sucked into social media and food porn and things like this that are, um, good distractions, but... I don't think overall as wholesome or as, um, as meaningful as they could be.
1: Mm-hmm. So not unlike this, you wrote um, this great essay about how Netflix and other streaming services are kind of like the demise of our ability to seek out culture in the real world um, in a way that you were able to do so with Blockbuster. So can you talk about that essay and maybe some of the ties there?
2: Sure. Um, so yeah, this was an essay I wrote called Be Kind, Rewind, um, kind of playing with that old video store Uh, phrase. but um, So basically, I realized that uh, I used to spend a lot of time in video stores, and I thought, um, and they feel so antiquated now, there's actually only one blockbuster left in the country, in the world, actually, in Oregon. And so, um, and I I think most people don't even really, uh, many people who are listening to the show maybe never even been to a video store, and we have really no reason to with how well Netflix and Spotify and Hulu work but um, I think there's something lost in that. Uh, there's not just the, the labor of the, the video store clerks, who I kind of snarkily talk about in the essay as being um, you know, kind of uh, protectors of their domain, but I think also um, as a cultural critic by training, someone who really cares about um, understanding art and understanding film and understanding literature and then recommending it and explaining it to um, my audience via writing, right? I think if we rely on algorithms to do all that work for us to just deliver something that is connect, that is that the algorithm deems to be similar to something else we've liked, then I think we end up selling ourselves a bit short. Um, We sell we sell the uh, that hard work of taste. Uh, We sell we we allow that that all important thing of taste to be um, calculated by um, lots of different. Calculated by an algorithm as opposed to people um, And of course, you know, algorithms are, are uh, monitoring our human's behaviors And then kind of calculating them for us So it's not like they're completely getting rid of the humans But I think it is getting rid of that sense of that, that possibility for connection For um, communion that can happen when you bond over pieces of art I think that's one of the big reasons why we uh, watch film or watch television in the first place
1: Mm -hmm. So if I may, in this one rare instance, defend the internet and creepy things that go Mm -hmm. on it, I think um, the benefit of streaming services like Netflix or Hulu is that they um, at least provide this illusion of having everything and anything we could ever want at our fingertips. And that in turn puts the onus of developing taste on the viewer or the subscriber. Um, How would you argue with that?
2: I know, and and I mean, um, uh, I I do think... Uh, I think you're the way you put it—that the onus is on the viewer um, to be mindful and to um, kind of assess and to uh, check themselves before they wreck themselves. I'm totally all about that. I think um, uh, I, 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 I don't want to portray all social media as monolithically bad, right? It's all—it all comes down to the way the the way the user uses it. But I just I worry that algorithms get so good that they turn into magic and. Um, it takes a special kind of person to, um, you know, to take that on themselves. And so personally what I hope I, I convince my, my students and then my, my readers to do is to uh, just do exactly what you're saying. But, um, but that said, like, uh, there's, um, there's so much available on these streaming services, and that's wonderful. There's, there, uh, and I try to admit that in the essay, too. There's just stuff that I, um, I wouldn't have found any other way. And that's why I'm, I'm really happy that I found it through um, Filmstruck is the, the, uh, the, the app I talk about in the essay. It was a really crummily designed app. It didn't work very well, but it did help me find their, their library. was amazing, and I found new things that I would have never uh, stumbled upon, even in a great video store.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the same argument can be made um, for social media. I, if I could defend my use of social media, I feel <laughs> like I use it um, mostly for entertainment and mindless entertainment at that. Um, but also in seeking inspiration in um, my forms of communication and art and creative endeavors. And so, how how do you think? What are the the benefits? What are some other benefits of social media that might be here?
2: Well, yeah, I mean. Um I don't mean to come across as a luddite here. You know, I do think there's plenty of amazing things. Like, um, I think the simple fact that for writing we can we can not only look up um, uh, um, kind of facts so quick. Like, I think um, that's that's amazing in the first place. But I think we often overlook that how much the ability to write and revise at the same time have actually changed the way we think and the way we write. Hmm. You know, you can imagine, um, and I think for the better, right? Uh, you know, I think uh, for my own writing process, I like to just um, brainstorm and just to, to see whatever comes up, and, and I don't have to feel this pressure that if I type something out and it's bad that I have to keep it, right? So I think um, that's great. I also, um, I also use social media for um, uh, both kind of uh, entertainment and also professional connections. Like, I've, I've found a lot of great academic writing and, and just uh, great writing on it too so i don't mean to say that there's and again i think um there it's I, I always argue for the human trying to like reclaim the human but there is um uh there are limits of the human too obviously so being in this networked social environment you find new stuff and you find um new ways to push yourself as a thinker and as a uh, um and and as a um critic or and as a uh, just a consumer of culture so yeah I do think there are plenty of great opportunities I just don't want to let them snuff out all the, uh, the the dangers that could happen if we just trust it too much
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so back to that point on um, kind of like the comfortable confinement of algorithms, um, I feel like a saying of our time is to be on brand or within the Mm -hmm. aesthetic. Um, So what are the larger cultural implications of always being on brand and following people that are always within your brand?
2: I mean, I think that's, um, I think it just, uh, I guess the the connotations and the larger dangers of that would be just that you lose that ability that, that we were talking about as one of the best things about Um, digital culture and social media that chance to find something new and to try something new um I think developing a brand and then staying on it is maybe logical in terms of the way uh you know especially when you're using social media for professional connections right you have to kind of get your niche and develop it but I think um the danger of that is then you don't get that chance to discover something that you didn't know you didn't know and as as an educator and as um someone who, as an intellectual, I really think that those are those moments that um, have the ability to change so much of you, so much of what you're looking for. So I think we have to find ways to make sure that those happen as often as possible. So staying on brand can kind of, uh, if that limits it, then I'm I'm a little worried about it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so how does this simultaneous fear slash fascination with digital culture kind of feed into your fascination with authenticity and not?
2: Well, um, so I actually think it kind of comes out of um, kind of some corny, corny ideas a little bit. Um, so, I mean, old belief structures um, have never really worked for me. So I'm not a religious person. I wasn't, I wasn't raised with religion, and I have really no um, desire to be. But I, do, I am looking for something to believe in. Right? I want something, again, going back to that question of how to live a meaningful life and how um, to do the right thing. Right, I, I've been looking for that my whole adult life and um, so um, in literary studies there's this uh, movement called the New Sincerity so it's basically novelists um, since the early 1990s who've been really working on trying to write what they honestly feel so probably the most famous uh, writer in this vein is David Foster Wallace um, and so um, so, so like, as a literary scholar and a cultural scholar, I, I kind of um, got into that um, that, was the, that movement early on and was very excited about it and really felt um, kindred with that. You know, I've seen these other people who are really trying to look for stuff that was meaningful, was real, that, that, that and that they could believe in, even if it wasn't um, a higher power, per se. And so thus, um, I think that kind of scholarly interest crossed over into um, a question of um, finding real food and authentic food, um, especially because, as I mentioned, creative work and writing can be so abstract and can be so slow and so demoralizing, right? I was really looking for something that uh, was tangible. I wanted to do something, um, and so I wanted to make authentic food, and so I got into baking bread first off, and then also homebrewing beer, um, making uh, a hard apple cider, things like that became outlets for me to use this kind of scholarly and intellectual interest, but then also put it into practice in the way I was spending my days.
1: Mm-hmm. And so as you kind of identified these key kitchen projects that you wanted to pursue, how did you define authenticity to yourself and why, yeah, what are what were the limitations of that for you?
2: Well, so yeah, um, I'm trying to think back to it now. Like I, I don't think I would have used the word authentic. I think that's how I'd kind, kind of explain it to people outside of the process but i think i was just looking for um again i I think i kind of approached it like a scholar i I saw uh, authenticity as a a research opportunity right so as opposed to like thinking so i I was very excited by the fact like, huh how do how do other people do um this certain technique right how do you make uh how do you catch wild yeast in a uh in um into the mixture of flour and water, right? How does that work? So I kind of looked into that and then I got um, kind of pulled into that because it, was, it kind of, again, it felt a little magical, right? And so, um, and then. Wait, you and,
1: can catch a wild goose with just flour and water?
2: Oh, no, yeast.
1: Oh, yeast, okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, understood. That would be kind of a, Yeah, I, was I mean, like, wait, I need you need to explain that use before a, we a move on. sourdough to catch a, too, <laughs> a goose, too. But, um, but yeah, so uh, uh, that, that kind of um, excited me thinking about. Um, learning about how, and, and again, as a scholar and someone who's very interested in history, um, this became a moment to see, okay, well, how did people uh, used to bake bread? How do people used to uh, make apple cider before um, you just buy it at the store, right? Like, So uh, this, this quest for authenticity was a place for me to kind of learn about the process and the, the step-by-step, uh, the way things are made. And so that um, was something I didn't really... But then looking back, and after describing this to people, I realized that I was kind of falling into this trap of maybe um, over-romanticizing this idea of authenticity. I know the show is so much about this kind of uh, relationship between authenticity and inauthenticity. So I realized I was kind of using authenticity as as inspiration while probably kind of being inauthentic uh, in the process.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in your pursuit of the quote-unquote new sincere food um, or authentic food, as you call it, is it's always looking to the past. And why do you think? I think that's like totally common uh, mm-hmm. practice that we all do. But why do you think it's so hard for us to use and build on what's around us now?
2: Hmm, that's a, that's a great question. I think um, I, I, I I I guess I just say it's uh, romanticism, right? I think there's this sense that um, humans are really good at. Uh, having selective memories and forgetting pain and forgetting hardship, right? So I think looking to the past is this. It's really easy to make it more rosy than it was, right? Um, so if we live we live lives that are mostly based on screens. Uh, if our work is based on screens, right? I think that it it only makes sense that we'd be like, well, maybe if I could have a meaningful work that's uh, digging in the dirt or uh, mixing mixing dough by hand, right? That feels more real. That feels more authentic because you know partially because it's just different, and then also just because it seems to come from this past that we have invented that was better and richer and more honest than the way we live now because it's because I think that also is related to the fact that it you know the past our sense of the past doesn't have to change. we can kind of just have it set back there and then like, try to reach it, whereas changing the future that's really difficult, mm-hmm. right how do we make our our work lives more meaningful in terms of the way we use our screens or the way we uh, produce our content, right? Or how we stay on brand. I mean, that's people, and I, I think plenty of people are trying to answer that question, but I think it's a lot harder than maybe just trying to chase this uh, past, even if it is invented.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. But um, just to push on this a little bit more, if the food of our past is better, um, more honest, more healthful, um, better for us and our souls, then what is our food today? Um, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily the opposite of that either.
2: Oh, certainly not. And, um, that's a big theme of the, the beat essay that, uh, um, that I wrote. I mean, I think, um, I think we have the opportunity to, I mean, we, we have, uh, food is more prevalent and easier to come by than ever before. And that's not inherently a bad thing. That also means that we can, um, use the lessons of the past to make a, uh, a better food future and a better political future, right? I mean, um, it seems like, and, and, and again, like, um, I, I, I definitely fall guilty to romanticizing labor and the way I do labor and, and really getting into the manual aspects of it, but um, uh, the fact that I can, I can, um, because of uh, the fact that I can spend my, my hobby time working right is a sign of how far our civilization has come in terms of technology that um i uh that um it's just we are uh, the industrial food system and industrial uh, technology has made it so people don't have to all work on subsistence levels right we can travel further we can um we can specialize in different things i mean the university that i work at or the university system wouldn't exist if we didn't have um industrial processes for the production of materials and especially food. Mm.
1: This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit
3: tabardin.com. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. And you know, Heritage Radio Network has thousands more. Hi, my name is Linda Palaccio, and I'm the host on A Taste of the Past here on HRN. Join us on a weekly journey through culinary history where we explore the when, where, what, and why of food throughout history. You can find A Taste of the Past wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: And we're back. So before we get into the beat essay, um, you talk about feeling like an outsider, though you've lived in North Dakota for quite a while now. So can you talk a bit about where you lived before and what brought you to North Dakota and why exactly it is you still feel like an outsider?
2: Sure. Um, so I, I just ended my last comment about talking about the university. And so um, so I went to college in upstate New York at uh, SUNY Albany, and then I went to graduate school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I met my partner there. Um, and actually, it was, um, uh, the program wasn't English per se. It was called Literary and Cultural Studies. So that's one of the only programs in the country that um, studies that, uh, that focuses on cultural studies. So that's why I wanted to go there. Um, I spent about 10 years in Pittsburgh, um, getting my master's and my Ph.D., and then my partner was actually offered a uh, tenure-track job here at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, um, and so we, tra- we we moved here together. Um, I didn't start until six, till a semester later. I was finishing my dissertation still, um, and so then I came into the English department with her, and um, so, yeah, I've been in Grand Forks now for five years, and um, I definitely feel like an outsider partially because i think the community here is used to um the, the university professionals being transient and not staying around and um and kind of bringing different attitudes different priorities and so i think um people just expect me to be a certain way uh and and so whenever i say i'm affiliated with the university they kind of just um, stand stand away a little bit. Actually, like, one of my one of my closest friends has joked that she's not going to make friends with any more university professionals because too many have moved away, you know, and she's been hurt too many times. And so I think that's another element of this, right? So I feel like an outsider partially because um, it's hard for me to prove that I'm committed to this place and uh, this way of life.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, to further, I guess... Assimilate to your community? What are different habits or cultural practices that you felt like you've had to adopt or you're learning to adopt?
2: Well, um, so luckily I was already interested in cooking um, before I got here. Me and my partner spend a lot of our uh, hobby time and free time cooking together because, um, you know, there's just uh, moving to a a town of around 60,000 people in the upper Midwest. Um, it just doesn't have the range of foods that I was used to coming from Pittsburgh, which is a great food city, by the way. If you've ever been, I highly recommend it. There's a million great restaurants. But, um, and so it's not to say that the food is bad in Grand Forks. It's just, um, uh, um, my, my partner and I eat mostly vegetarian, and so there's not a terrible amount of options. So, um, we've had to kind of adjust our expectations, and we never want to be rude and kind of, um, return on people's hospitality, so that means we end up eating, um, uh, you know, differently than we would have if we had just, uh, just uh, our, uh, our druthers or if we just had our pick. But um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a moment where I get to meet and understand people a little bit better by um, eating with them and um, you know, eating the same things that they eat.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what, what led you to decide to try uh, driving a beat truck and how long did you do that and what was the whole, the whole process?
2: So it was actually a pretty great small town moment. So my partner and I made this friend at the farmer's market in town. You know, and so we just, we talked a little bit and, you know, we uh, left with each other's numbers. And then a a little bit later we were, um, we we were trying out the new wine bar that had just opened in downtown Grand Forks. And we go in there and it happens that, um, that friend we had made was there with her husband. Um, and so she invited us over to her table and, uh, uh, the husband mentioned that he was a sugar beet farmer um, and that he actually needed a, he has a pretty small, he only has um, three beet trucks. And so there's 12 hour shifts. So he had needed six total drivers. And he said he needed, um, he had one shift open. And I mentioned that I was teaching at the university, but I had a pretty flexible schedule and I'd be, I'd never done anything like that before, but I'd be interested in. And so he welcomed me to try. Um, so my first shift was 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., so um, I, I didn't realize when I was signing up for that 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 means that I probably had about 20 minutes of flight for the whole shift. Um, it starts because uh, each year the, the harvest starts October 1st, so already by then um, uh, the sun comes up rather late and goes, to, uh, goes uh, down pretty early this far north. Um, and so, um, so, yeah, that, that was my, uh, my first time driving i would never even driven like a u-haul before (laughs) um and i didn't need any kind of special license because uh actually the laws in north dakota and minnesota where i was driving um make it easier for um, farmers to hire temporary labor especially for driving and especially for the beet harvest because it's very time sensitive Mm -hmm. um so that was my first attempt in it um and i've been doing it for four years now and have plans to do it on the next harvest in october
1: So what exactly are sugar beets and why are they so important to um, the Red River region?
2: So sugar beets are, again, I didn't know anything about them before I moved here. I knew about red beets, the the normal ones that you put in salads or make borscht out of or whatever, but a sugar beet is a cousin of that that is completely um, white. So if you you taste a, a normal red beet, it kind of tastes like brown sugar almost. Whereas, um, because there is a lot of sugar in there, but these sugar beets are designed for um, uh, sweetness potential. And so they kind of look like um, a red beet, but they're completely bleached white. And they're big. They're genetically modified to be big and sweet. Um, So they're about the size of a football or a Nerf football. And they're so important to the agriculture here because um, they um end up being a great cash crop um, They so there uh, we have five uh... sugar uh, refineries in um... the north dakota minnesota uh... region um, and so these are big economic um, drivers and so as part of that the reason for that is um... kind of political and kind of complicated but um... i guess in terms of just uh... region um, north dakota is very very cold Minnesota is very cold and so um, what's nice is after we uh, haul, the, so the sugar beet harvest, we harvest from the fields and we bring them to the refineries, but they can't refine all the sugar right away, so they need to store it, and so we get free refrigeration. Um, even by mid-October, we're already getting into the freezing temperatures, and so if uh, you can let the beets sit from there and then process them as they go.
1: Mm-hmm. And so can you explain a bit about the complicated um, politics of it and also why our relationship with these sugar beets is kind of fraught?
2: Sure. Um, so as it turns out, um, uh, um, there are really, uh, extensive tariffs and, um, uh, there are extensive, um, uh, uh, tax subsidies that go to protect sugar beets. Um, so, um, and this is a uh, the reason for this was partially to discourage the production of sugar in places like Cuba, um, and uh, elsewhere, right? So we wanted to have American-made sugar, and so uh, we created these big um, subsidies to fund this operation. It happens to be re- to do really, really well in North Dakota. It happens elsewhere, um, many other states, but North Dakota and Minnesota are kind of perfect for it. We have good soil, and that, again, that cold temperature, like I was saying, so. Um, but, yeah, but the, the, what gets really dodgy about that is then um, this subsidy uh, gets divided into only about 4,500 farms, so um, it ends up being a lot of money going to a relatively small amount of uh, farms, which, um, and so, so something else that I explore in the essay is just that, you know, it seems like there's a lot of American taxpayer money going to support this, and what we're getting out of it is not just um, sugar for coffee or tea or something, but we're getting um, a product that is used for um, used in many hyper-processed foods. Um, so, uh, so as a, as a someone who really does care about healthy food and healthy environment, um, I started to realize that I was, as much as I was enjoying myself uh, doing this manly thing, driving a beet truck, I realized I was contributing to the development of this uh, system that is using U.S. taxpayer money to uh, produce unhealthy food that, you know, I don't think you can discredit its relationship to diabetes and obesity epidemics that are currently uh, happening in our country Mm -hmm. and throughout the world.
1: Um, So are there any other prescribed uses of sugar beets that may lead to a healthier future? Or is this kind of the one thing that they can be used for? And I mean, I understand that. then the economy is kind of messed up, right? If if it's solely dependent yeah. on these be- the beets.
2: Yeah, I mean, so um, sugar beets aren't eaten. At least to my understanding, they're only used to make. Um, so here, around around uh, here, you can buy like five ten pack five ten pound bags of five or ten pound bags of sugar. Um, that's crystal uh, crystal cane crystal sugar beet sugar, um, but most of it is shipped to. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- this is not a very healthy crop. <laughs> um, so obviously sugar has its uses, um, it can and can be fermented into alcohol, which is always great. But um uh and there are even there are some uh small microbreweries, microdistilleries uh, micro distilleries in uh in the region who are experimented using sugar beets as a basis for rum. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um but in general these uh this um this harvest is used primarily to make sugar and then sugar that's either uh eaten raw or are eaten um added to uh, foods that by the consumer or added in industrial uh, factory environments.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, can you talk more about this kind of tension between quote-unquote fake and quote-unquote uh, quote, real or good food? Because it feels like um, it's hard to reconcile the two in this case.
2: Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think what, what I kind of came to was that just by waving my flag and saying that this stuff is bad for us, that this stuff is um, uh, is bad or evil or something was not going to get me anywhere um, even when I was talking to, or even for myself or for my kind of uh, building of community around people who rely on this. Um, and so it made me think about, well, why, you know, it, wh- why these people might um, overlook some of these things or wh- why they may not consider them in the ways I did. And I realized that it's, you know, like, um, I guess one of the big reasons that this is um, uh, exciting or interesting to me too is that many, many farmers are very uh, are very uh, conservative and are worried about taxes being used inappropriately. And so here I found an example of taxes being used to support farming, but not for the kind of farming I would like to see. And so thus, it felt like um, a bit of a contradiction or a little bit of hypocrisy that we'd have someone who would criticize one uh, so I'm talking about the farmer who I actually work for who um, happily takes the subsidies but doesn't necessarily, um, but but doesn't, uh, but worries about big government, especially for health care and things like that. So I, I thought of it as an opportunity to see how, um, to understand for myself about, well, why people might be scared of these things, but then also to try to think about ways that maybe if we could remind the people who who uh, use taxpayer money to do things that matter to them and to survive um, low-margin farming. I mean, it's hard, to be, it's hard to be a farmer. It's hard to make enough money to survive. And you're always um, in debt because you have to be planning three or four or five years ahead of time all the time. So it seems like um, I, I hope that trying to uh, bring this up to the farmer who was uh, anti-taxation and anti-big government, he could see perhaps um, some of the arguments that people on the left would use for why we need more federal funding to important programs. And if we could get to that point, then I thought we could have a very interesting value conversation about, well, what's important enough to support and how can we drive money towards that?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: in the essay, you actually write that um, kind of, in a very abstract sense, the quest for authenticity is a way to bridge the gap here. And so what are some actionable steps that you see as being realistic?
2: Hmm. So, I mean... I think the actionable step is actually to talk to farmers and to talk to the people who, um, are, uh, uh, who are producing our food, right? And again, I, I have the opportunity to do that because I live in an agricultural reason, but um, I think also, um, like, to not to draw this division between, or to think about farming in a brighter sense than just the farm-to-table uh, organic farmers or CSAs that we have in more... Uh, coastal and um, urban regions of the United States, but to remember the Midwest and to remember uh, um, to remember that so much of our, uh, our our food is coming from here. But if we can start to kind of understand the, the challenges that farmers are going through, maybe we can also encourage them to start thinking um, in ways and and making livings in ways that would be better in my opinion, and uh, and I think many scientists' opinions, would be better for uh, the health of our population, the health of our world, right? We can think about trying to become uh, more carbon neutral in our farming practices. Um, and we can think about trying to find 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 use find ways to use our incredible food technology to get fresher, um, wholer food in, on the plates of people all across the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe not a direct resolution to this, but you also talk about how um, DIY food is another way of kind of resisting, um, quote-unquote, the man or bigger mm-hmm. systems that are unjust and kind of hard to fix as is. So can you talk a bit about um, what the DIY food movement means to you and how it kind of affords community inherently?
2: Sure. I mean, so uh, DIY, I, I, just, I really share Sandra Katz's argument, the fermentation guru, Sandra Katz, Makes the argument that people um, people aren't aren't satisfied by being just consumers, right? So doing it yourself gives you this opportunity to make something for yourself, for your family, for your community, right? And um, and I think this goes back to this whole idea of authenticity. It doesn't we don't have to go and make you know authentic kimchi or um, authentic authentic bread that was made by the peasants of of 19th century France, right? Because um, this food has changed along the way Right so but that said um, Finding ways to Cook for ourselves and cook for each other um, Is Uses the best parts of authenticity Which is inspiring curiosity it's, it's, it's Inspiring research But then also it gives us control Over what goes in our food Right um, so uh, And I, I think the added bonus is I've always found that cooking And uh, is a great is a great time to think. Going back to the whole mind-body divide I was talking about earlier, right? When you're cooking, you know, you're you're paying attention, but you're not paying complete attention. You can, your mind can wander. So I think there's also this moment where you can think about uh, those decisions you're making for yourself, and um, and kind of remember how the food got from uh, the farmer who's growing it to uh, to your to your kitchen, and then how it gets from your kitchen to the plates of uh, of your friends and family.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You acknowledged before that this, um, while amazing and beautiful is also slightly romantic and hard to prescribe to everyone, Um, it might not just might not be accessible to everyone. And so how might you suggest um, those less fortunate, you know, partake in the slow food movement as silly as that sounds?
2: No, I mean, um, I I think uh, like. I, again, I really do think um, if we can if we change the conversation to be about the quest for meaning, I think there's um, opportunities for this. It doesn't ha- if it doesn't have to be um, if we don't have to have all these standards about what makes a DIY enough or authentic enough, right? I think there are small passive, or in relatively passive ways for um, people to get involved in this. Right? Like uh, um you don't need any special equipment for a lot of these things, right? Yes, it helps to have a cast iron pan, uh, cast iron Dutch oven to bake bread and a sourdough um, and make it look like a tartine loaf or something like that, make it look really beautiful, but you don't need that, right? You just, um, as I was saying earlier, flour and water will catch the wild yeast for you, right? Um, And again, we don't need to be making kimchi or something, uh, authentic kimchi with fish sauce, right? If you can um, if you can find a cabbage and a big enough jar to fit it in, you can make yourself sauerkraut. Um, so, uh, I think we we spend a lot of money on food. Or food is cheaper than it's ever been before, but like I think there's o- other ways that we can use. We, we can uh, by adding um, a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, know-how and a little bit of um, time to the process. I think. Um, there's it, 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 this, this privilege doesn't have to be just for a few. And that, I think that involves education. I think that involves um, getting access to fresh ingredients to as many people as possible and keeping the prices down. Um, and then I think put those two together, and I think there's opportunity for everyone to enjoy the benefits of slow, whole food.
1: I think that's a perfect way to end our episode, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure.
3: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebrations happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter,